sure uh, you would wish me on your behalf to say a special thank you to the musicians uh, who've been rehearsing tirelessly and who are blessing us enormously this morning. So thank you very much indeed. Let's just express our appreciation. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, it will help me if you would please open it to Titus, the letter of Titus, chapter 2, and just a short reading, verses 11 to 14. Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, and uh, I'll be reading from verse 11. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Well, just so far in God's holy and inerrant word, word of prayer as we Think about that passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious and life-giving word. We pray that in the next few moments you would open that word to our dull and sinful hearts and our dull and sinful hearts to your precious and life-giving word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during the lockdown, I think we've all been reminded frequently that we are living in a highly visual culture. Uh, We communicate visually over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. We learn visually, the students have been doing that, and we are entertained visually. So, one of the great challenges I think facing Christian believers today is the invisibility of God. Uh, People say, how on earth can we believe in a God we can't see? Now that actually is not a new problem. Uh, It was a problem for Israel in the Old Testament because their pagan neighbours would taunt them and tease them for worshipping an invisible God. Uh, The pagans, you see, worshipped gods made of wood or stone. They could see their gods but the God of Israel was invisible. And uh, what was a problem in Old Testament days is still a problem in our materialistic age. Because people have been taught to believe that unless we can detect something with our five senses, and especially, of course, the sense of sight, well, it doesn't exist. Uh, Seeing is believing, we're told. So the invisibility of God is a problem and we mustn't try and minimise that problem. God is invisible. Now the New Testament, of course, constantly reminds us of this. 
So in his first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul describes God as eternal, immortal and invisible. And at the beginning of his Gospel, the Apostle John famously says, no one has ever seen God. But scripture also says that there are two occasions when the invisible God becomes visible. The first, of course, is when Jesus Christ came into the world on the first Christmas day. During his earthly ministry, Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then the the other occasion, of course, is still to come. Because the Bible says that at the end of the present age, Jesus will appear again in awesome power and glory. So here are two occasions when the invisible God becomes visible. One has already happened and one is out there in the future. Now the New Testament uses a special word to describe these appearances. Uh, In fact, the word in the original language gives us our English word epiphany. It's a rather strange word, but it is a Bible word, so we can't ignore it. And it appears twice in our passage this morning. So it's there in verse 11 where Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, or literally, the grace of God has already made an epiphany. And it's there again in verse 13, where Paul says, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing, or epiphany, of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, referring, of course, to his return. So the new word that I want us to think about this morning is this word epiphany. What on earth is an epiphany? Well, it is the appearing of something or someone that was previously invisible. It was there before, we just couldn't see it. So in Jesus' day, it was the word they used to describe the daybreak or the dawn. After the long hours of darkness, the dramatic moment arrives when the sun leaps over the horizon and suddenly you can see it. That is an epiphany. The sun was there all the time, but you couldn't see it until the dawn came. Or think perhaps of the polar ice cap. Uh, Global warming is causing the polar ice cap to melt at an alarming rate. And as the ice recedes, Uh, scientists are suddenly seeing land and vegetation that no one had seen for 40,000 years. It was there before, but you couldn't see it. Now you can, and the scientists are terribly excited about it. That is an epiphany. Now in the New Testament, uh, this word epiphany is used ten times to talk about the two appearances of Jesus Christ. It's used four times with reference to his first coming and it's used six times to refer to his second coming at the end of human history. 
And in our passage, uh, these appearances, you'll notice this, are both related to salvation. So notice this, in verse 11 we're told, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then we're told in verse 13 that the blessed hope we're awaiting is the glorious appearing of our God and Saviour. So Jesus is going to come back to complete the salvation he began at his first appearing. So with that background, I think we're now ready to consider the two comings, or if you like, the two epiphanies of Christ. The two occasions when the invisible God becomes visible. Just a few moments on both. So first, there has already been, in the past, an epiphany of grace. An epiphany of grace. A visible manifestation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, isn't it, in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everybody. Now, I'm sure we all know what grace is. I'm sure if I asked the students, I would be 100% confident they would define it accurately. Grace is the undeserved mercy of God. It is God's kindness to people who don't deserve it. Now, of course, we have to say that grace didn't suddenly come into the world for the first time when Jesus was born because the God of the Bible has always been the God of grace. But the grace of God appeared visibly in Jesus Christ on the first Christmas day. And, of course, it continued to shine brightly throughout his earthly ministry, both in the gracious words that he spoke and, of course, in his marvellous miracles of compassion. And I guess we've been learning about that, haven't we, on Sunday mornings in our studies in Mark's Gospel. But above all, above all, his grace is seen at the cross. The cross is the greatest demonstration of the grace of God that there has ever been. Because it was on the cross that Jesus bore the penalty for our sin in his own innocent person so that we might be forgiven and justified. So Jesus Christ was full of grace. And more than anything else, his first appearing was an epiphany of grace. But there's something else in our text which is really rather interesting. Because grace not only appeared in order to save us. Did you see this? Paul says that grace also appeared in order to teach us. He says that grace has become our teacher. It it trains and it disciplines us. So towards the end of the 19th century, a pastor by the name of Hay Aitken published a little book called The School of Grace, which was a meditation or an exposition of these little verses that we're looking at in Titus chapter 2. And in it he said this, Grace not only saves, 
it also undertakes our teaching. All Christians are learners in the school of grace. So what does the grace of God teach us, you may ask? Well, verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to a life of self-control and godliness in this present age. In the present age in which we're living, grace is our teacher. Because God came in his great love in order to save us, this teaches us that we are to live a new life of holiness and of righteousness. So, grace is our teacher. That's the first thing this morning. But now we need to move on and consider, secondly, the epiphany of glory. We've seen the epiphany of grace. We're now thinking about the epiphany of glory, which you can see in verse 13. Verse 13 says, we're waiting for our blessed hope. What's that? It is that Jesus will appear in glory. And uh, Paul describes it, doesn't he, as the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So that means that you and I need to understand that the person who's going to appear on the last day of human history is the same person who appeared on earth 2,000 years ago. Um, The invisible God is going to become visible again in the person of Jesus Christ. He's already appeared in grace. He's going to reappear in glory. And it is the, the reappearance of the glory of God which is the hope of every Christian. Now please will you also notice how Paul describes Jesus here. I think this is one of the most majestic descriptions of Jesus in the whole of the New Testament. He says that Jesus is our great God and Saviour. It's a marvellous phrase that, isn't it? Well now what I want you to do is to stand back from the text for a moment and think about what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in these verses. Because in one short paragraph, Paul has brought together the two great events that mark the beginning and the end of what we call the the Christian era, or if you like, the church age. And surely the reason that Paul does that is because he wants his readers, including you and me this morning, to keep both of these appearings of Jesus together in our thinking. So that, when we look back to the first appearing of Jesus, which is of course what we do at Christmas, we also look forward to his second appearing. And I think perhaps an illustration will help us at this point. A few years ago, Gillian and I started bird-watching. And I think that some of the most spectacular sightings that we've enjoyed have been sightings of owls. Indeed, uh, I think my favourite sighting, personally, was of a giant eagle owl perched on the branch of a tree in the Kruger Park sometime last year. Now, you don't have to be an expert 
in order to identify an owl. Because every species of owl, without exception, has a round face in the middle of which it has two yellow eyes. And somebody has said uh, that there is one particular way in which owls are superior to human beings. Now, I know we sometimes have the expression, don't we, that uh, such and such a person is a wise old owl. Are we thinking perhaps of the wisdom of owls? No, we're not, because the wisdom of owls is a myth. And neither are we thinking of an owl's amazing eyesight. No, we're thinking of the fact that God has created the owl in such a way that it can swivel its head 180 degrees without moving its body. So there it is, perched on the branch of a tree, its chest and its feet pointing that way, and it can turn its head 180 degrees and look in the opposite direction. Now, of course, that is impossible for us. If you can do that, please do come and show me afterwards. (laughs) But um, although we can't do that physically, Paul is saying that all of us should be doing it spiritually. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know that one of the characters in John Bunyan's classic is someone called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Now, Mr. Facing Both Ways was a bad guy because he was facing God and the world at the same time and he couldn't make up his mind whether to become a Christian or not. And I'm not suggesting that you and I need to become like a Mr. Facing Both Ways in that sense. But in the sense that we look back to the first coming of Christ and are looking ahead to the second coming of Christ, we are facing both ways at the same time and that is what God wants us to do. But you might say, well, Simon, what's the point? So what? Why does this matter? Well, there are many critics of the Christian faith today. I don't need to tell you that. And they will often say to us, why on earth can't you Christians be more practical? You're either totally preoccupied with the distant past or with the far distant future. You're only interested in the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago or the second coming of Christ at some unknown date in the future. Why can't you Christians live in the present? And we can say, well, actually... That is precisely what the Apostle Paul expects us to do. So please would you glance back with me in your Bible to the beginning of chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. You'll notice at the beginning of the chapter that Paul says older men are to live a life of dignity and maturity, older women are to behave reverently, and train the younger women in the congregation to love their husbands and children. Younger women are to be good wives and good mothers. Younger men are to learn to control themselves. Titus is to be a good teacher and a good example. And slaves, or as we would say, employees, are to be conscientious in their work and honest in all their dealings. All of us 
are to renounce evil, says Paul, and pursue goodness in this present age. Did you notice that phrase at the end of verse 12? In this present age. The idea, you see, is that we are to live in these ways, in the present, in light of both the past and the future. Because if we were to ask Paul, why should we behave in the way that you describe in Titus chapter 2, Paul's answer is, because in Jesus Christ, there has already been an epiphany of grace in the past, and there's going to be an epiphany of glory in the future. And both these epiphanies are related to our salvation. And while we're waiting for Jesus to return and complete that salvation, you and I are to live lives of godliness and holiness now in this present age. And so, as Christmas approaches, let's pray and ask for God's help to do just that. Will you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we praise and worship you because you came 2,000 years ago on the first Christmas day into that stable. That you identified yourself with our humanity and with our sin. We ask that our Christmas season may be full of adoration. And we also ask that you would keep reminding us that you are coming back one day. And we pray that we would live in the light of these two great events when the invisible God becomes visible for all to see. So hear our prayers, we pray. Amen. I will lead us in a short congregational prayer that will appear on the screen, which we can say together. Together. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today.